again. Um, I don't know how many of you are history buffs, but um, I, I enjoy studying history. And if you know the story back at the beginning of the American Civil War in 1861, uh, the first major battle of the American Civil War was called the First Battle of Bull Run or the uh, First Battle of Manassas. And this was one of those uh, battles that everyone, if you were in the north of, for the Civil War, if you're part of the Union, you thought that this battle would kind of end things, would, would put the, the Civil War at an end and end the rebellion of the South. And so as, a, as the army w- marched out of Washington, D.C., about 30 miles uh, south to this place called Bull Run or Manassas, uh, much of the polite society of Washington, D.C. actually went out with them. And they got in their carriages and took picnic lunches along with them to go and watch this battle because they thought it would be short and sweet and the rebellion would be put down. But that didn't happen. And all those who had gone out to be entertained by this battle were kind of given an unexpected induction into the brutality of warfare. And they actually fled with an army that was in disarray back into the city in shock. Um, And if nothing else, it's a lesson in not going to battlefields for the sake of entertainment, if you ever, you know, want to do something like that. (laughs) It's brutal and bloody and violent and ugly. You go to a battlefield or, or, or you go to a war if you have a purpose or if you're caught there unawares or, or not because you chose to. But these folks were, were really dressed for the wrong party. To take a picnic to a battlefield was to look for the wrong thing in exactly the wrong place. And this morning as, as Jesus begins or he talks here about John the Baptist, he asks a very kind of a similar question to these crowds of people. Now, remember, John the Baptist was this man who came and rose up as a prophet in Israel, and and people went out to see him. They went out to the wilderness, to the Jordan River, and many of those people are following Jesus now. So Jesus speaks to them in verse 7. After he had just finished speaking with John's disciples, and John at this point is in prison. He's, He's in a dungeon and really waiting his fate of death. Of execution. And Jesus spoke to the crowds then about John the Baptist. And he asked them three rhetorical questions. And he says to them, What did you go out into the wilderness to see? What did you go out to look at? And the, the Judean wilderness, where John spent his time, was much like a battlefield. He didn't just venture out to this place for a nice weekend vacation, you didn't go out there to appreciate. The scenery, it was desolate, it was dangerous, it was difficult to access. There wasn't a highway that went out there. There weren't hotels or restaurants or those kind of things that we might be used to. It was a a desolate, difficult place to be and to get there. And if you went there, you went there with an intent and with a purpose. You were looking for something. And those who went to see John the Baptist, many, many of whom were now listening to Jesus, surrounding him and watching him and and attending to him. To go see John the Baptist, they had to leave their homes for a time. They had to perhaps even step away from their livelihoods for a time and from their families to make this kind of grueling trek out to see John the Baptist. They had to go out of their way through challenges and discomforts to go and see and hear from, from this pretty wild man 
of a prophet. It wasn't just for entertainment. There was another purpose. So Jesus is asking them to think about why. What did you go out into the wilderness to look at? A reed shaken by the wind, he asks. And on a very literal level, the rhetorical question kind of affirms the fact that the crowds didn't go out there to enjoy the scenery. They didn't go out there to look at the reeds and, and the river and the rocks and the desert and those kinds of things. But on a more figurative, figurative level, and what Jesus is really getting at here, they, they weren't going out to see a man who bends in the wind. They weren't interested in making a, a grueling trek just to hear from a spiritual lightweight or, or someone who was a pushover or a, a weakling. This was a man who had no earthly possessions except for the clothes on his back, He had no earthly authority, but what he did have was a backbone. He boldly preached repentance to the masses of people. He was not afraid to confront power. And in fact, the the complete antithesis to John, the, the complete opposite of him, was the man that he called out. King Herod, or or Herod Antipas, Herod the Tetrarch, who was who was really a puppet king. He was a He wasn't a real king. He was a puppet of Rome. And if anybody could be called a wind-blown reed, it was Herod. He went along with with the political tides of the day. He had authority, not like John. And unlike John, he had no spine either. Every decision he made was driven by fear and blown about by the by the winds of popularity and power. So. So Jesus asked another rhetorical question. You didn't go out there to see a, a, a reed that's just going to be blown by the wind. You, what then did you go out to see? Verse 8. A man dressed in soft, or that word can actually be translated effeminate clothing. Did you go out to see a man dressed in fine, luxurious clothing? And we know about John that he wore rough and wild clothing that was suited to his environment. Back in chapter 3, verse 3, it describes John as wearing a a garment of camel's hair and a a leather belt around his waist, and his food was locusts and wild honey. John was not a man who knew luxury. He didn't know comfort. His, His message matched his lifestyle, too. He was calling for people to repent, to turn away from their sins and back to God. And his message matched his lifestyle that that he was calling people to forsake their comfort, forsake the things of this world, and turn back to Yahweh. And so with with tongue-in-cheek, Jesus takes another jab at Herod, this king who had imprisoned John. And he says, look, men who wear soft or effeminate clothing, they live in king's palaces. Who else would he be talking about but Herod? These aren't men you find in the wilderness. These aren't men who live ascetic lifestyles and pursue God without reserve. Now, ironically, guess who else was in the king's palace at this time? John the Baptist. But he wasn't reclining on a couch sharing a meal with King Herod. He was in the dungeon. The people had chosen the wilderness over the palace. They didn't care what Herod had to say. They wanted to see and hear from a man who was neither weak like a a wind-blown reed nor soft like a man wearing effeminate clothing. The people were ready for a word from God rather than political jargon from some puppet king. So Jesus asks a third time, What then did you go out to see? 
in verse 9. A prophet? Yes. They were looking for a prophet. But why in the world would anyone look for a prophet? I mean, who in the right mind would go out of their way to look for someone who's going to yell at them and tell them about the ways that they've disobeyed God and turned their back on Him, who will confront them on their sin? Why would they look for someone who's just going to call them to repent? Who does that? Well, I'll tell you who. Those who do that are hungry for a word from God no matter what the cost. Those who desire something beyond the world of human kings and kingdoms no matter how difficult it would be for them to hear. You see, for these people, the world had offered them oppression and emptiness. It had offered them poverty and grief. And these people were ready for something more. They were a people ready to hear from and meet with God in the wilderness. Just like their ancestors, just like the Israelites of old, to meet with God in the wilderness. And if we're honest with ourselves, oftentimes we are content with weakness and softness. Because it's easier, isn't it? Isn't it easier to hear someone who tells you what you want to hear? Isn't it easy just to kind of turn the the news channel up and hear what you already believe in your ear and and just be okay with that? But we live in days, brothers and sisters, we live in days when the Word of God is scarce. And it's becoming scarcer. And does that create in you a hunger to hear from God? Does it create in you a hunger to hear from God? Are you just okay hearing what the world has to tell you? Does it it create in you a hunger to make sacrifices to follow God? To step away from from comfort and and from the lap of luxury that we live in? We can find teachers and leaders to tell us what we want to hear all day long. But when the Word of God is out of season, will we make the sacrifice to hear it? And to obey it. It's a question for all of us. So what are we looking for? Who is this John? Jesus goes even further than calling John a prophet. The last part of 9b says, Yes, you're looking for much more than a prophet, I tell you. This is the one who was written about. And he quotes from from Malachi chapter 3, verse 1 here. He says, Look, I'm sending my messenger before your face, who will prepare your way before you. Truly I say to you, there has not arisen in human history one greater than John the Baptist. And and John was indeed the last and the greatest Old Testament prophet. And he was the greatest because he was the Messiah's herald. He was the immediate forerunner of the Messiah. And and he, he fulfills this prediction from Malachi Chapter 3, verse 1. And the fact that these people had made the difficult journey into the wilderness to hear from John and to respond to John's message of repentance and to actually do so, to be baptized by him, and then for many of them to go and follow Jesus, this was actually a sign that John had done exactly what God had sent him for. 
In Matthew 3.3, we read this, For John is he who was spoken of by the prophet Isaiah when he said, The voice of one crying in the wilderness, Prepare the way of the Lord, make his path straight. That's exactly what John had been doing. This is a, a job description that in the book of Luke is made explicit by the angel Gabriel when he appears to John's father, Zechariah. And he says, For he, John, will be great before the Lord. And he will turn many of the children of Israel to the Lord their God. And he will go before him in the spirit and power of Elijah to turn the hearts of the fathers to the children and the disobedient to the wisdom of the just to make for the Lord a people prepared. Later on in that same chapter when Zechariah himself, when his mouth is open after the birth of John and he, he prays this prayer and he says this, And you, child, speaking of John, will be called the prophet of the Most High, for you will go before the Lord to prepare His ways, to give knowledge of salvation to His people and the forgiveness of their sins. So as Jesus says, all of the, all of the Old Testament prophets in the law, in verse 13 here of, of Matthew 11, all the Old Testament prophets of the law prophesied and pointed forward in shrouded truths to the coming of, of, of Jesus, of the Messiah. They didn't know who it was or when it would happen. They, they spoke kind of in mysteries and shrouded. But now John physically points to the Messiah. This is the cousin of Jesus who knows him, who baptizes him in the Jordan River, who stands with his disciples and says, Behold, look, this is the Lamb of God. The one who will take away the sins of the world. Now he physically points to the Messiah when all of the other prophets just kind of pointed with words to a future time. And now here, here's John who has the, the, who has the ability, who, who is given the task of rolling out the red carpet for Jesus and welcoming him onto the stage of history. What greater honor, what greater honor for a prophet would there be? It's the reason Jesus would call him the greatest human being ever born. He was the last prophet before God would now finally speak through his son and usher in a new age. So John was the, the pivot person. He was the doorman to the kingdom. He was the one that stood on the threshold at the river pointing to the other side, at the chains of the times, at the inauguration of the kingdom. Look at verse 13 of Matthew 11. For all the prophets in the law prophesied until John, and if you are willing to accept it, he is Elijah, the one who must come. Whoever has ears to hear, let him hear. And in, in Jewish thinking of the time and still today, the Eli- Elijah was expected to come and usher in the kingdom as predicted in the very last lines of the Old Testament, Malachi chapter 4. Behold, Malachi writes, I will send you Elijah the prophet before the great and awesome day of the Lord comes. And he will turn the hearts of fathers to their children and the hearts of children to their fathers, lest I come and strike the land with a decree of utter destruction. So this hope of Elijah's coming is actually commemorated year in and year out by observing Jews. And if you've ever been to a Seder or a Passover dinner, we've held them here at First Baptist throughout the years. Uh, Jewish people of today at the Passover dinner will reserve a seat and keep it empty for Elijah because they expect him to come. They expect him to return at the Passover and bring freedom and bring in a new age for the people. In fact, a, a popular misconception about Jesus in the time 
was that he himself was Elijah. He speaks of that in Matthew 16. He asks his disciples, who do people say I am? And they say, well, some of you think, some people think you're John the Baptist, come back from the dead. Some of you, some people think that you're Elijah. Some people think that you're the prophet. But Jesus is making explicit here exactly who John was if the people are willing to accept it. He was Elijah, come, bringing in a new age, which would have been a difficult truth to accept primarily because of how it would define Jesus. Because if John was Elijah, then Jesus was something greater, something these people had never seen or heard before. So Jesus is actually saying more about himself than he's saying about John here. Because if John is who Jesus says he is, then these are the last days. The last days are here, and they are here in the person of Jesus Christ. And that can only be accepted if you have ears to hear. So the point, of course, of calling John great, the greatest ever born of women is that Jesus is magnifying his greater greatness. John's great, but Jesus is greater. As great as John is, he still cannot be as great as Jesus. And John heralded and announced the kingdom, but Jesus would be the one who inaugurates the kingdom, who ushers in the kingdom, who brings the kingdom. Verse 11, Truly I say to you, there is not arisen in human history one greater than John the Baptist, but the smallest one in the kingdom of the heavens is greater than he. And so if you give me a, a second to make a comparison here, it's almost like John was, was Moses. You remember the story of Moses bringing the people out of Israel and they wandered in the desert, in the wilderness for 40 years. And then finally they come, in the book of Numbers, they come to the, up to the promised land. But Moses had been told that he couldn't go in. And all that he could do is go up to the top of a mountain and look across the Jordan River into this promised land. As much as he begged God, please let me go in, God finally said, stop asking me about it. All I'm going to do is show it to you. And so in a sense, John is like Moses, standing across the river, looking into the promised land of the kingdom, but not able to enter. And Jesus, if you will, is a new and better Joshua who is leading his people into the promised land. John was great among men, but Jesus is greater. And John cannot hold a candle even to the small ones who are great by virtue of their relationship to and standing with Jesus. So when Jesus comes, the kingdom comes. And when we come to know Jesus through faith in him, where do we go? We go into the promised kingdom. And to know and love and follow Jesus in his kingdom, that's what it means to be great. You want to know greatness? You want to be great? Know Jesus. So I make two quick applications here, one corporate and one more on a personal level for us. And the first is we're often more comfortable looking back on the past and and looking back at like a John the Baptist, holding on to memories of what God once did for us. And there's nothing wrong with that. In fact, 
as I spoke of earlier, we intend to do that very thing as a church next spring. Look back on God's faithfulness over 150 years in this city, bringing the kingdom in this city, proclaiming the name of Christ in this city. If First Baptist Church wasn't here, I'm not sure I would have come to faith myself, personally. The danger, though, comes in being stuck in the past and failing to move forward with what God is doing today. We can walk with God in hope and faith as He advances His kingdom and still look back with gratitude on what He's done, but clinging to the past for comfort, whether it's the, the way that we always have done things or traditions or whatever, what we've already always known can never be a substitute for clinging to Jesus, our hope and our comfort. I don't say that in a condemning way. It's good and right to look at the past of God's faithfulness, even to grieve the past for things we have to say goodbye to. But let's be a church who is alive to God and what God is doing in the present as he's calling us into his future. And then on a personal level, I would speak this morning to those of you who are quite possibly been prepared to meet Jesus, and yet you're kind of standing at the river, kind of standing at that door, and the kingdom's on the other side. It's quite possible that you are close to the kingdom, but not in the kingdom. Maybe you've been told about Jesus. Maybe you grew up in the church or been in the church for a long time. Maybe you've learned about Jesus from your parents or from a friend. Maybe you've been taught good morals and yet you still remain outside the kingdom because you haven't yet met Christ, the King, the one who brings the kingdom, the one who offers us entrance into the kingdom, the one who is the way, the truth, and the life. And so you still remain outside on the other side of the, of the river at the door. And the question for you this morning, if that's you, Is Jesus calling you to enter in? Is Jesus calling you to throw yourself upon Him in faith, to cross over, to place your faith and trust in Him today? And if that's the case, I want to invite you to come talk to one of us this morning as we continue on. But first, I have to deal with a really difficult verse. And it's verse 12 probably notice I skipped over it. And we're going to get to the rest of the verses that Dean read next week, by the way. But as you consider this reality that Jesus has, has called us into the kingdom, I do want you to be wrestling with that idea. Have I come in or am I still waiting outside? Now, I want us to turn our attention to verse 12 because this is kind of a strange and confusing verse that inhabits really a central place in this text, and yet it feels completely out of place. Here's what it says. Oh, that's not it. Sorry. Ignore what's on the screen. And from the days of John the Baptist, chapter 11, verse 12, until now the kingdom of the heavens suffers violence, and violent people seek to ravage it. And the overarching theme really running throughout this entire passage is the kingdom of God, the kingdom of the heavens. John was its herald, Jesus its fulfillment. But as Jesus has been teaching and showing throughout this gospel, 
The kingdom is not what is expected. The kingdom doesn't work as we would expect it to. So if all of us were to gather in a room and God was to give us the assignment of come up with what the kingdom of God would be like, we would not get it right. It would be completely different from what we would think, what we would dream of, what we would put down on paper, and what we would fulfill in our own power. It doesn't work the way we expect it to. In the kingdom, the first are last and the last are first. In the kingdom, the smallest are the greatest, and the greatest are the smallest. In the kingdom, the way to get your life is to give your life away. The way to retain your life is to lose it. And John himself probably didn't expect that as the Messiah's herald, he would be left by that same Messiah to languish in a dungeon and end his days with his head on a platter. Jesus' disciples likely didn't expect that when they were given the good news to take out into the world, that they would be hunted down like sheep in the midst of wolves and come up against constant and violent opposition. This wasn't the kingdom they would have dreamed up. But Jesus is teaching us that the kingdom, which is the rule of God, is and will be opposed in this world at every turn. And the remainder of Matthew's gospel is marked by the reality of a kingdom that is suffering violence at the hands of violent people. And John's fate is simply the precursor of Jesus' own suffering of violence. So that's your verse that's on the screen here, Matthew 17. Jesus says this to some of his disciples. He says, I tell you that Elijah has already come, speaking of John the Baptist, and they did not recognize him, but did to him whatever they pleased so also the Son of Man will certainly suffer at their hands. This is not one of those uplifting messages we we love to hear, but here's the truth. The way in which the kingdom advances, whether it be by imprisonment or beheading or betrayal or crucifixion, is not the way we expect it to advance. But as the church father Tertullian said in the second century, the blood of the martyrs is the seed of the church. God graciously has chosen to advance his kingdom through the suffering of his Messiah and through the suffering of his people. Jesus' kingdom will not advance through human ingenuity. It won't advance through military victory or violent defense or force or entrepreneurial creativity, it will advance as it suffers all the violence that Satan and his kingdom can throw against it. And the way of the kingdom is to overcome violence, not through violence, but through sacrificial love. Wolves will seek to attack and ravage the kingdom of the heavens, but Jesus ironically sends his little disciples, these small ones, his sheep, into their midst. And through their suffering, through their persecution, through their sacrifice, he conquers. The weak smallness of the disciples is greater than even the ascetic discipline of John. And both of them, though, will overcome, through their sacrificial love, those who violently oppose the kingdom. So in God's economy, the kingdom doesn't advance through our prosperity but through our suffering, through our sacrifice, through our love. 
So the simple question for each of us is, what does that look like for you? And as we come to the communion table this morning, we're reminded again once with something that we can see, with something that we can touch, with something that we can taste, we're reminded exactly of what this meant for Jesus. It meant that he would go, an innocent one, and hang on a Roman cross, unjustly accused and unjustly hung there for the sins of others, for the actions of others, including you and including me. Because he hung there and took on the wrath of God, we don't have to. He took on the sin that belong and the punishment that we deserve so that we might experience forgiveness and be brought back to God, brought into the kingdom. For God was in Christ reconciling the world to himself. And the way you access that is simply by trusting in Jesus. So if you do trust in Jesus, if you have given your life to him, we invite you to come and, and re-experience that and touch it and see it and taste it and smell what Jesus has done for you through his sacrifice. And if you don't yet, if you're, if you're not even close, if, or maybe if you're at the door, I'd encourage you to come and speak with us. And today may be the day for you of salvation, of giving your life to the Savior who loves you and has given himself for you. Will you pray with me? Jesus, we come today and you spoke difficult words to your disciples and to these crowds and you speak today difficult words to us and and Lord, we have to decide if we're going to be ones who will go out into the wilderness because we're hungry for the word of God, because we're hungry to hear from you, even if you speak things to us that we don't want to hear, even if you confront us on our sin or our prosperity or our love of comfort whatever it might be lord would we would we welcome that even today welcome your words to us and for us jesus we're grateful for your word which is difficult to hear and yet like peter said you have the words of eternal life jesus to whom else should we go so jesus once again we come to you and we come to you at the table remembering your gracious sacrifice, the gift of salvation and forgiveness that you have given to us. We pray, Lord, if there are those in this room that stand at the door, that stand by the river, looking in but not being there yet, Lord, that today for them would be the day of salvation, that you would do a mighty work in their hearts, Spirit, that you would draw them to yourself in faith and in trust in King Jesus. And we pray all these things. In your name and for your glory, amen.